Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. Today, we are going to look at the second Sunday in Lent. The second Sunday in Lent. A brief review, particularly for those of you that might be joining us for the first or second or third time. We are in the lectionary, and in the lectionary we have a listing of scriptures from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Gospels. Now, when I say the New Testament, we're mostly talking about Paul's letters. As you'll see, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians. We also have Psalms, but I'm not going through the Psalms. The program would be too long if we did that. But you'll see the scriptures located in this post, and you can see that we have listed for you the Old Testament, New Testament, and Gospel. So we will be looking at Genesis 41, 14 through 43, 34. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 1 Corinthians 7, 24. And we'll be looking at the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, verse 7, verses chapter 5, verse 20. Now we'll be in these for several weeks, in these scriptures. Genesis, 1 Corinthians, and Mark. Now we are in the second week in Lent. What does that mean? That means that Lent has five weeks plus Holy Week. Holy Week culminates with the resurrection of Christ. On Good Friday, as I'm sure you know, we have the death of Jesus on Friday afternoon. We have his burial, and then we have his resurrection early Sunday morning. Five Sundays in Lent, followed by Holy Week, which is a, just a fabulous week, and I will look forward to sharing those scriptures with you, and it's a beautiful time for reading. We celebrated Ash Wednesday, the last Sunday after the Epiphany during that week, and we have prepared and kicked off our Lenten journey with Ash Wednesday. And uh, we began with thinking about uh, our time before the Lord, our walk with God, our need for fasting, our need for prayer, our need for self-reflection, our need for self-denial, acknowledging our sin, looking at our sinfulness, um, thinking about what in our life needs amendment, needs change, what in our life needs forgiveness. So as we go through these scriptures, we want to have the idea of Lent as a backdrop, that it's a time for uh, being honest before God, of praying to God, of thinking about our relationship with God, uh, certainly confessing our sins before God, looking at for ways that we can fast from uh, those things that plague us and cause problems in our lives that bring sin into our lives, temptation, which we talked about on the first Sunday in Lent uh, from the Sunday's service, the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, where Jesus is encountered by Satan in the wilderness. And even Satan himself tempted Jesus 40 days and 40 nights. So we're dealing with temptation, dealing with our sin, dealing with our relationship with God. And as we journey through this together, I again encourage you to read the scriptures daily. Think about what they are saying to you. If you have a uh, study Bible, you might be looking at that information uh, about the text. Uh, if it's a little bit unfamiliar uh, to you at the bottom of your study Bible. All right. We are in Genesis 41. Now, a tremendous amount has happened in Genesis. <laughs> Genesis is one of the most significant books in the Bible. 
all the way from the creation of the heavens and the earth, our creation, creation of Adam out of the dust of the ground. Eve is created out of Adam. Remember, he closes his rib. Uh, the institution of marriage at the end of chapter 2, the fall of man in chapter 3, the death of uh, Abel by his brother Cain in chapter 4. Then we have the chapters uh, 6 following that have to deal with Noah and the great flood. The rainbow is the covenant that God would not bring another flood again to destroy them. And then we have the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. In chapter 12, we have finally we get to the solution of the problem. We need to have a Messiah. And so Abram, Abram uh, is chosen from all the people of the land. God chooses him and he's going to raise up a people. And from that people, called the Israelites, the Jews, the Messiah is going to come. And we celebrate that coming of the Messiah on Christmas Day, season of Christmas. Jesus is born. Abram and Sarah have Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac's the son of the promise. And Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is of the promise, even though Esau was born first. And Jacob has 12 sons. And that's where we pick it up here. Last week, we looked at Joseph, chapter 37. He was the favorite. Ah, but his brothers didn't like it. The other 11, they didn't think very highly of him. And what happened is, they remember, they threw him in a cistern. Thankfully, there was no water. They see some travelers coming by. They pull him out of the cistern and sell him. And then Joseph is sold to Potiphar. And Potiphar is a very major figure in Egypt. And Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him. And he's thrown into jail. Now, it seems like God has forgotten Joseph, but he doesn't. Through a series of amazing miracles, some of which we'll see today, Joseph rises to phenomenal leadership in Egypt. Let's see how that happens. Pharaoh has dreams, chapter 41. Pharaoh has dreams. And for those of you reading, again, they are listed in this post. Read that, those opening lines in chapter 41. And he's looking for someone to interpret those dreams. Well, he finds out that Joseph has the skill to do that. Verse 14, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. He was in a dungeon. They shaved him, they changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Now, this is a guy in a dungeon that's going to appear before probably the most powerful person in the world at that time. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. Verse 15, but I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph says, I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So he tells him the dream. Joseph interprets the dream. Now, the dream interpretation is coming from God Almighty. He gives them interpretation of the dream. 
And please read that in chapter 41. I won't read that for you, it's quite long. Verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms, this is seven years of abundance and seven years of famine, is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Verse 33, and now Pharaoh must look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Because for seven years, they're going to be blessed, but in seven years, it's going to be famine. So somebody's going to have to come in here and manage the state of affairs as a result of plenty and as a result of want. So Joseph tells Pharaoh, if I were you, I'd get somebody to take care of this. Otherwise, you're going to have some major problems. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land, verse 34, to take a fifth of the harvest during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of those good years that are coming up and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the city's food. So he's giving him what he thinks is the solution to the problem. The plan seemed good, verse 37, to Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? That's a staggering statement. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Let that sink in. Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 41, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. He put a gold chain around, chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as the second in command, and the men shouted before him, make way. He put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 44, I am Pharaoh without your word. No one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. And then he gave him a wife, Zaphonath Paneah. So he got a wife, he got a gold chain, he's in a dungeon, and he gets to be second in all of Egypt. It's one of the great stories of all time of how a man trusted God, even to the point of possible death. Potiphar could easily have killed him as a result of what he was accused of before Potiphar's wife. Put him in a dungeon of which God showed him great favor. And then God's providence, Joseph was exalted to the second position. What goes on from there? Well, in chapter 42, he starts dealing with his brothers. His brothers need help because there's a famine. There's seven years positive, and then there's a famine. So the seven years positive happens. And Joseph wisely stored the grain. So he had a tremendous amount of grain while everybody was starving. Well, the people uh, of uh, Jacob's children had, to, you know, Jacob still thinks Joseph is dead. They've got to go and work with Joseph. And so in chapters 42 and 43, you see the journeys to Egypt. You see the journey of the brothers and what the brothers had to do with Joseph. Now, I'm going to leave that to your reading. It's very easy to understand. You don't need my help here. But you will enjoy 
how Joseph dealt with them and how Joseph saw them and how Joseph wisely discerned what to do. Because remember, those brothers threw him in a cistern. Those brothers left him for dead. Those brothers told their father that he was in fact dead. What would you do in a situation like that? The reading in Genesis is fascinating. Please enjoy. Let's look at the New Testament reading that we have been given from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is after Romans. Quite an extraordinary book. We ended up in chapter 4, a 3 last time in the first Sunday in Lent. And now we are in, we looked at the first three chapters. Now we are in the fourth chapter. <clears throat> and we are talking about apostleship. Now, the problem in the church is that not everybody's trusting Paul's leadership and apostleship. They're not sure. They're questioning it. And so Paul begins in chapter 4 to share with them concerning his apostleship and the judgment of God upon him and the fact that God has given him this commission. Let's look at verse 20. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Verse 21. Shall I come to you with a whip or in love with a gentle spirit? Now, Paul could have been difficult with them and could have chastised them seriously, but he chose not to come in a hard way, but in a loving way, but a firm way, and an honest way, and a truthful way. A lot we can learn here. Chapter 5. We have sexual immorality in the church. We have sexual immorality in the community. They didn't have a church at that time, but it, they were meeting and they were congregating. There's a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud, verse two. Shouldn't you have been filled with grief and had put him out of the fellowship, the man that did this? Even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. I'm not physically present to tell you what to do, but I am present with you in spirit. And so I'm very much interested in what you're doing. Here's what he says in verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, he says in verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So what you see here in chapter 4 and 5 is an honest conversation about some of the problems that are in the Christian church. Now, they could have just told us stories in the Bible that were all positive, everything works out for good, uh, in the sense that we're not going to show you all the bad stuff, but, we're gonna, but we, we showed you Cain kills Abel. God destroyed the people in Noah's time, save the people in the boat, in the ark. There's tremendous problems in the Tower of Babel story. Then we have Joseph's brothers throwing him in the well. We have the deception of Jacob over Esau. And the list goes on. In here, we have this sexual immoral act. Then there's a lawsuit in chapter 6 with, unbelie with believers in the first several verses. And then there's this masterful reading in the second half of chapter 6 concerning sexual immorality. So we have sexual immorality, we have people questioning his apostleship, 
in chapter five. In chapter six, we have a lawsuit and he says, you were washed, verse 11. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of God. What are you doing? You can't be doing this. God has saved you. God has blessed you. You need to treat each other better. Then in the second half, as I just said, about sexual immorality. He says, everything, verse 12, is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. What's the body meant for? The Lord, and the Lord for the body. So God establishes the importance of the body, the importance of our body, the importance of your body, the importance of my body. And sexual immorality is not what it's for. So there's a beautiful teaching here on how to use your body. Flee from sexual immorality, he says in verse 18. Verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your body. Isn't that a beautiful line? Honor God. Your body is important. It's a gift from God. God made you in his image and likeness. He saved you by the blood of Christ. But you've got this body, this tent, as Paul says in another scripture. This jar of clay in 2 Corinthians 4. Use it well. You'll only have one. Honor God in that body. Flee from sexual immorality. So there are problems in the church. Paul is answering the problems. He's not running away from them. And he's not sugarcoating it either. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Chapter 7. Now he talks about marriage. Another very controversial subject. Even to this day. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to his, her husband. It's talking about their sexual life together. Sexuality. Right there. Bold. Bold, plainly seen. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. Now, the woman's body and the man's body does not belong to anybody outside that marriage relationship. Now we're back to the sexual immorality part. But in the confines of marriage, which we heard was established in Genesis chapter 2, the second book of the Bible, the second chapter of the, of the first book, I should say. Chapter 2 of Genesis, he establishes matrimony. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then he says, believe it or not, in verse 9, if you can't control yourself, you should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. Sexual immorality is not good. You should marry. That's right there in the Bible. Paul's answering the questions regarding marriage. He, he, he continues to do that. I'll let you read that. Uh, in your daily lectionary reading through verse 24. It talks about unbelievers. It talks about believers. As I said in verse, chapter 6, he talks about your body. He talks about your body in relationship to marriage. He talks about our bodies in relationship to not marriage, which would be in, in sexual immorality. He talks about marriage itself. This is why the reading of the Bible is so important. This is why your reading of the daily lectionary is so important. These, a lot of these issues that you and I deal with on a daily basis, they're right there in the Bible. You just have to know where they are. You just have to read on a regular basis and God will speak to you. And I pray that he does that as, again, 
we journey together in this Lenten season. Much reflection is given in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Let's look, turn to Mark chapter 3. We left Jesus off in chapter 3. Verse 7. The crowds are following Jesus. Why? He's saying things no one's ever said before. He's doing things that no one's ever done before. He's casting out devils. He's healing a paralytic, chapter 2. He's um, driving out evil spirits. He's healing a man with leprosy at the end of chapter 1. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, verse 11, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. He's got the evil spirits listening to him, submitting to him. Then he appoints the 12 apostles. They're all listed there from verses 13 to 19. Obviously, they're very important. Jesus is going to disciple them for three years. Then he talks about Beelzebub in chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. Are evil spirits alive and well today? Yes, they are. Who has the power over evil spirits? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. I love 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. So Jesus is talking. He's visiting with people. He's teaching. He's, he's discipling. And a crowd was sitting around him. People want to hear what he has to say. And they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you, which basically means they're looking for you. This time is ended. You need to go. They want you to be with them right now. And then Jesus says, he could have said, yeah, okay, guys, I'm, 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 I'll come back a little bit later. I got to go take care of this. This is an amazing statement. Who are my mother and my brothers? Well, your mother and your brothers are your kin, right? Your, those that are related to you. He looked around, those seated in a circle, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sister. In the end, brothers and sisters, it's about knowing Christ and doing his will. Those are the people that are the closest to Jesus. Not necessarily even his family. Now, if his family obeys the Lord and does his will, they are his mother and brother and sister. That's how important the obedience of Christ is. My prayer is that all of us will do that so that he could say the same about us. In chapter 4, of Mark's gospel, we are looking at parables. I'm not going to go through each of them with you. We have the parable of the sower, very famous parable. We have the parable of the growing seed, which is only found in Mark. We have the parable of the mustard seed. So Jesus is teaching in a different way now. He's using different language. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Parables take some reflection. These might be readings that you look at in the bottom of your Bible, if you have a study Bible. He calms the storm. They can't believe what this man can do. He calms the winds and the waves, verse 41. Who is this guy? He has control over even nature. And then finally, in chapter 5, 1 through 20, we have the healing of a demon-possessed man. This is an immensely powerful person, so powerful they had to leave him off to his own. Nobody could take him. In verse 8, Jesus says, come out of this man, you evil spirit. What is your name? My name is Legion. So he's talking to the demon. We are many. He begged Jesus to send him out of the area. 
he sends them into the pigs. The pigs run over the bank. And so instead of the people being excited, the man's been healed. They're mad because the pigs are dead. The people in verse 17 began to plead with him to leave their region. The man wants to go with him. Jesus says, go home to your family and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. As you're reading through the Gospels, think about this man, Jesus. Think about the miracles that he's doing. But go to another level and think about what he's saying to you personally. The mother and brother and sister uh, reading is just a classic, simple example of what God wants from us. Look at the compassion of Jesus in healing this man. Look at the compassion of Jesus and the fearlessness and the courage he has in calming the wind and the wave. Look at the power of Jesus as he rebukes evil spirits and gives people sanity and rest and comfort and salvation. Enjoy your reading for this second Sunday in Lent. Next week, we'll be looking at the third Sunday in Lent. May God bless you abundantly in your reading and prayer and study of the Holy Scriptures. God bless you.